pray with me, please? Father, thank you for the greatest gift of all. The gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in your Son, Jesus, alone. Thank you that you've taken me, who was once your enemy, and because of Jesus, you've given me a seat at your table, and you call me your son. Lord, may we never get over what you have done for us in Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus. Your grace is so great. It's greater than all our sins. And so we thank you for being a good, good father, for loving the unlovely, for showing grace to the unworthy, for being for us who we could never be ourselves and doing for us what we could never do ourselves. And so now as we open your word, I pray that you would show us once again with fresh eyes the glories and the grace of Jesus through the story of Ruth and Boaz. And so now I pray that you would love your people well through me. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love, hands and feet to obey, and knees to bow before you, because this is your word pointing us to your Son. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. It is always a privilege and a blessing to sing with you on Sunday mornings. I love this time together. And I would encourage you this morning to open your copies of the Scriptures, please, to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. If you walked into this room this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay because we have a Bible there for you in the seat back of the pew in front of you. It is page 264, 264 in that copy of the church Bible. And as you're finding your place there, let me just say, because we are picking up the story of Ruth in the middle of her story, if you haven't watched the first six sessions in Ruth, it'd be really helpful if you could jump on to our YouTube channel. Not now, okay? Not now. But when you go home today and, and watch each of those because each of them builds on the, the, the previous one, which means we're going to try to pick up the story of Ruth in the middle of the story here. And because it's been seven days since we've been together and some of you are brand new with us this morning, let me try to just bring you up to speed as quickly as I can. Naomi, a Jewish woman from Bethlehem, along with her two sons and her husband, initially left Bethlehem for a 10-year stay in Moab, but during their stay in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and Malon and Kilion, Naomi's sons, all die, leaving Naomi with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth determines in one of the great love statements of the Bible in Ruth 1, verses 16, 17, and 18, Ruth determines that she is going to return to Bethlehem with Naomi. She's not going to leave Naomi alone. She is going to commit herself to Naomi. Where you die, I will die. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. 
And in that moment, Ruth is turning her back on her home and her homeland and her family and her gods. And she is embracing now by faith the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And she's going to flesh out that love for God in love for Naomi. And when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, we are waiting to see if God is going to solve their two big problems. The two big problems they're facing because they are widows living in a male-dominated society. And so the first problem they need solved is that they need food. It's their short-term need. They need to survive. And then secondly, they need a family. They need a man who's willing, willing to step up and step in and protect them and provide for them over the long haul. And in chapter 2 of Ruth's story, we've already seen how God has met their short-term need. When Ruth providentially heads out into an unknown field where she discovers and meets a man by the name of Boaz. She doesn't know it yet. But he is her knight in shining armor. He is not only happy for her to glean in his field, he also promises to protect her while she's in his field. He then invites her to a beautiful romantic dinner around the table surrounded by sweaty men just in from the field. It's their first date. It speaks volumes. Because through Boaz... God has met Ruth and Naomi's short-term need for food. But the question we're still asking is, what about their long-term need for family? Because even though Boaz is a relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, which means he's qualified to marry Ruth, he seems to be dragging his feet with Ruth. He seems to be interested in her, but he really hasn't made a move with her. And as a pastor who's done a lot of premarital counseling in 30 years of ministry, this sounds so familiar. We guys are often slow movers, right, ladies? Okay. For those six of you, we guys are often slow movers especially when we're focused on our job like Boaz is here. But with the barley and wheat harvest now coming to a close... Naomi is going to step in, and she's going to seize the opportunity to play matchmaker. And I can hear the song from Fiddler on the Roof in my mind. She's going to play matchmaker. It's going to involve some strategy, some intrigue. And for Ruth, it's going to require some major risk. Let's pick up the story now in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 1. And then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? You know that, with whose young women you were in his field. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, Ruth replied, 
All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly. She uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord Jehovah God, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy Woman, this is the word of our God to us. And the big idea in it, now some of you, I I see some of you, stop. I know what you're doing. You're reading ahead. That is not allowed. Not allowed. Because if you read ahead, the danger is that you miss the big idea in this part of the scene. I just got to be honest with you this morning. Even though I read through verse 11, we aren't going to quite make it all the way through verse 11. So don't be mad. Don't be angry. We'll just pick it up next week. But I don't want you to miss the big idea for this week. Living by faith in God will require risking much for the glory of God. Living by faith in God will require that we risk much for the glory of God. That's one of the things that we are being told in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 when it says that we live by faith and not by sight. And so like Ruth, when we've taken refuge under God's wings and when we're resting in God's grace, we are able to risk much for God's glory. That's what Ruth is doing in this scene. She is embracing the risk of everything that could go wrong on this night at this threshing floor. She's stepping out in faith. You see, we can risk the world calling us a fool for putting money in the offering box at church or for not being willing to play politics at work or or for doing what a man named Bob Ford did back in the 1980s. See, Bob had a good-paying job as an air traffic controller in Kansas City. But when God called him and his wife to Africa as missionaries, he quit his job to be a missionary. That's risk. Are you willing to embrace that kind of risk? Or maybe that risk is about being vulnerable in a relationship like Ruth here. Maybe it's running the risk of a friend or family member turning on you if you share Jesus with them. Maybe you're single and the guy or girl who's taken an interest in you, if you were honest about your faith, it could jeopardize your future with them. Or maybe it's the vulnerability of confessing something to your spouse. Maybe it's something about your past, or maybe it's a sin that you're struggling with right now, and you'd rather not risk it. You'd rather hide it and not be honest about it. You'd rather live in the illusion of safety than in the righteousness of risk. 
if that's you, then you need to hear that your safe place is not in avoiding risk. It's an embracing risk for the glory of God who takes no risks. God takes no risks. He never has. He never will. Because he not only knows everything, he is in control of everything. Which means that when your security is in him alone, you are free to risk much for his glory alone. It's what Jesus calls us to do in Mark 8 verse 35. Whoever wishes to save his life, not risk it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, risks it. For my sake and the gospels will save it. So listen, listen carefully. Risk is not optional for the Christian. It's essential. And it's risk that Ruth embraces here when Naomi reveals the plan that she's devised. She comes to Ruth and she says, Ruth, Ruth, my daughter, do you remember what I said way back in Moab? Way back when you said that you wanted to come back to Bethlehem with me. You remember back then that my primary concern in coming back to Bethlehem is that I wouldn't be able to provide a husband for you. Wouldn't be able to find a man. You're a Moabite in a land of Israelites. And I want you to know that that concern I had back then still keeps me up at night. I need to find you a man, not just any man, but notice here, a man who will provide rest for you. Now, we need to know that the Hebrew word translated rest here literally means a settled spot. And so Naomi is saying, Ruth, you, you, you need to find a man. We, i got to find you a man who you can feel at home with. A man who will love you and covenant with you to provide for you and protect you. Now, let's just admit this morning that what... Naomi says to Ruth here is a good description of what a godly husband is to be and to do. God has called us as Christian husbands to provide our wife a settled spot in which she enjoys safety and security and satisfaction. And so men, would your wife say that's the kind of husband you are? That your big concern isn't climbing the corporate ladder or building a nest egg or becoming a scratch golfer. It's making your marriage a settled sweet spot for your wife. And so even though you've been married 20 or 30 or 40 years, you're still taken with her. You're still pursuing her. You still date her. You secure the babysitter. You make the dinner reservations. And then after dinner, you take her axe throwing. <laughs> you pursue her. Not just romantically, but spiritually. Because she isn't just your wife, she's first and foremost your sister in Jesus. So husbands, a great action step for us to take today is to go home, not now after the service, go home and ask your wife, am I making our marriage a settled sweet spot for you? And then listen to her answer and ask a second question. 
how can I make our marriage a more settled sweet spot for you? Guys, let's be Ephesians 5 verse 25 kind of guys who risk much for God's glory because we love our wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to provide a settled sweet spot for us. And that's what Naomi wants for Ruth. And so she says to Ruth, you need a husband. And even though you've been working in Boaz's field and eating at Boaz's table, you just, you can't just walk up to Boaz and say, hey, you're the man for me because without me, you're ruthless. (laughs) Okay, so listen, I've been waiting seven weeks to use that one. By the way, that's not, that's not unique with me. Every preacher who preaches on Ruth uses that. So forgive me. Now I've got to get back in the right mindset here. Um, Naomi says, Ruth, you, you, just, you, you, can't, you can't walk up to Boaz and say, you know, play the man, be the man, marry me. You're a Moabite in the world of Israelites. You've got to play your cards right. But since Boaz has shown grace upon grace to you, there is hope for you. He's qualified to be a redeemer for you. I've got the perfect plan for you. So so listen carefully. Here it is. He'll be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Okay, so let me interrupt Naomi just momentarily because since we don't winnow barley anymore, now we have combines that do that for us. But in Bible times, once the grain had been harvested, it would be taken to the threshing floor where they would separate the grain from the chaff, the good from the bad, either by beating it or having cattle walk on it and crush it. And then the harvesters would collect it, they would toss it in the air, and the wind would catch that chaff and blow it away while the grain would fall to the ground, which then they would gather up into big piles. And oftentimes, they would do what Boaz is going to do here. They would sleep beside those big piles of grain to guard that grain from thieves. Naomi knows that's what Boaz is going to be doing, and that's where Boaz is going to be sleeping. And so she says, Ruth, Ruth, hey, get washed up, put on some perfume, Dress yourself in your cloak, pull the hoodie up over you to hide your identity. Sorry to do this. I've got to interrupt Naomi again, okay? Because we might think that Naomi is saying, Ruth, you've been spending a lot of time out in the field lately. And honestly, Ruth, you're not looking so hot and you're not smelling so hot. And so it's time to give you a makeover. Now, that might be a bit of what Naomi is saying, but I don't think that's the message that Naomi is sending. You see, Ruth isn't getting all prettied up to seduce Boaz. She's getting getting fixed up to send a message to Boaz. It's the same message that Ruth's great-grandson, King David, will send in 2 Samuel 12, verse 20. It's after the death of his son. He washes up. He changes clothes. He splashes on some old spice. And I realize you've got to be from the 80s to get that. 
but it's a sign. He's sending people a message that he is no longer mourning the death of his son. And that's what Naomi is telling Ruth to do here. Ruth, you're letting Boaz know that you're putting your mourning of Malon, your late husband, behind you. And you're putting yourself forward for marriage with Boaz. And by the way, it won't hurt that you smell better. (laughs) So here's what you do. Sneak down to the threshing floor, concealing your identity with that hoodie. You hide behind a pile of grain. And when Boaz finishes his dinner, he's going to lie down for the night. Pay attention to where he lies down, because once he's asleep, you're going to sneak up on him. You're going to slowly uncover his feet, because when your feet begin poking out from under the covers at night and they get cold, you wake up, right? So will Boaz. And he'll see you lying at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. Okay, Ruth, that's the plan. So are you in? Yes, Naomi. I'm all in. All that you say I will do, I will take the risk. And it is a risk for Ruth. I mean, back in chapter 2, we're told several times that if Ruth had wandered away from Boaz's field, she could be in danger in the middle of the day. So just imagine the kind of danger she could face at a threshing floor at night. And Ruth gets that. But she's willing to do the risky thing because it is the righteous thing. You say, but Pastor Ken, the text doesn't say anything about being the righteous thing. Now listen carefully. Why is Ruth willing to take this risk? We're told back in Ruth 1, 16 through 18, She had promised that she would care for Naomi until death parted them. And so now Ruth needs to find a man who will commit to protecting her and providing for her over the long haul so that she, in turn, can protect and provide for Naomi. She can keep her word to Naomi. But to do that, Ruth needs a Jewish redeemer who will marry her even though she's a Moabite woman. And Boaz seems to fit the bill. He isn't just an eligible bachelor. He's a godly man. And so Ruth is willing to risk it all. And when we stop to think about it, that really shouldn't surprise us about Ruth Because as we think back through her story, Ruth has always been about embracing the risk. Ruth has a history of faith in God that enables her to risk much for the glory of God. She's left her family behind in Moab. She's left her homeland of Moab. She's left her old gods behind in Moab. And she's come back with Naomi to an unfamiliar place full of unfamiliar people, a new home with new people, and she has also embraced a new God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then she has taken the initiative to glean in an unfamiliar field, surrounded by unfamiliar men. But this, this is like over-the-top kind of risk. This is risk on steroids. 
The threshing floor? After dark? I mean, what if another man sees her and misjudges her purpose for being there because it was well known that prostitutes would hang out around threshing floors? What if she ends up lying at the end of the wrong pile of grain, uncovering the wrong man? Oops, wrong legs, my bad. Or what if Boaz misreads her intentions? What if he thinks that she is there to seduce him? He could totally cut off his relationship with her, leaving her with no field, no food, and no future. Or he could take advantage of her. Because listen, even the most righteous man placed in a difficult situation is capable of the most heinous sin. Let me repeat that. Even the most righteous man when placed in a compromising or difficult situation, is capable of any sin, even the most heinous sins. Remember a man by the name of David with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And remember that the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Men, none of us is above any sin. So as the Bible tells us, let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, lest we fall. Be careful. This is a big-time risky move for Ruth. It's a woman proposing to a man. It's a field worker proposing to a field owner. It's a Moabite proposing to an Israelite. This could be disaster. So how do we know if Ruth is taking a righteous risk or a reckless risk? Here are four questions that I hope will be helpful to you to discern whether or not, uh, whether a risk is righteous or reckless. Number one, is God's hand leading me to take this risk? It's what I talked about two weeks ago from Ruth chapter 2. You see, God's hand of providence and leading us isn't visible in the moment. It's only visible as we look into the rearview mirror of our life. Then we can see, oh, that's what God was doing. That's how God was leading. That's how God got me right here to where I am now. So only then when we look in the rearview mirror of life will God's hand become visible. So the question is, can I, as I look back into the rearview mirror, can I see Psalm 37, 23? That all along the way, this, the Lord has been ordaining and establishing my steps to bring me to where I am now. Is God leading me to take this risk? 
Ruth is confident that God's hand has clearly brought her here, that, that, that since that, then his hand would protect her here, because as has often been said, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And when she looks into that rearview mirror, she sees God's hand every step of the way. And when you know that, then you'll ask question number two. Will this risk require me to compromise God's law? Will this risk require me to compromise God's law? You see, it's never right to do wrong, even when doing wrong could produce a positive result. That's why Psalm 37, 27 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Ruth is not compromising here because she isn't breaking any of God's commands here. So is, if the risk is right for us, it won't require compromise from us, which is why we then need to ask the third question. Have I sought godly counsel regarding this risk? Have I sought godly counsel regarding this risk? Now, there is some debate. I just got to be honest with you this morning. There is some debate among Bible scholars regarding Naomi's counsel to Ruth here. Was Naomi being selfish in doing this? And giving Ruth this assignment, was it reckless on Naomi's part? Was she endangering Ruth intentionally? And was it wrong? Was it unwise counsel? But I believe that the Naomi we see in chapter 3 is different than the Naomi we met back in chapter 1. When she comes back to Bethlehem and says, don't call me Pleasant or, or Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me Bitter. And the difference between Ruth 1 Naomi and Ruth 3 Naomi is what God himself did in Ruth 2. And he's shown himself strong. He's been faithful. He's provided for Ruth and Naomi. And now I believe Naomi is thinking, if we can trust God with the short-term need, then we can trust God with the long-term need. But that doesn't mean we just sit here and wait, Ruth. It means we step out in faith and we embrace that risk. And Ruth turns to Naomi and says, what do you mean, we? <laughs> I think this is godly counsel. She's advising Ruth to go ahead and embrace the risk. It's obvious God has brought her here. He's with her here. And if the risk is right for us, then other godly people will agree with us. It's dangerous to go it alone. That's why Proverbs 11 verse 14 says, In an abundance of counselors there is safety. You and I need people who will ask us the first three questions as well as question number four. Is this risk an act of faith or a reaction to fear? Is this risk an act of faith or is it a, a reaction to fear? Because listen, now fear, fear, I want to be careful here. I want to be clear here. Fear can cause us to take good risks. Like years ago, Fear drove my wife, Joanna, to jump from a second-story window to escape a house fire. That's not the kind of fear I'm referring to here. I'm talking about the kind of fear that motivates us to take an unnecessarily reckless risk, like the fear of losing something you think you need in order to be happy. 
Like when you crave the affirmation of others, then fear of losing that affirmation will cause you to take reckless risks. You'll sleep with your boyfriend, you'll cheat on the test, you'll lie to the boss out of fear. Remember what Romans 14 says. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If a risk is not an act of faith in God for the glory of God, then it is a reckless risk. But that is not Ruth here. She is trusting God. She is believing that Boaz will be the man of God and that he'll do what the law of God says regarding what a redeemer should do. And that's why she steps out in faith to execute the plan. She gets all fixed up. She pulls on her hoodie. She heads to the threshing floor. What do you think this walk must have been like? How fast do you think her heart was beating? How many times do you think she played through the various potential scenarios that could happen, but still she goes. She sneaks into some hiding place where she can catch a glimpse of Boaz, and she waits as she watches for him to finish dinner. And then like every other man, this is another reason I believe in the authenticity of the Scriptures, like every other man after dinner, his heart is happy. Uh, Naomi's no dummy here. You wait till after he's done eating, right? The way to a man's heart is through his what? All right, think about that. You'll get it later, okay? <laughs> Boaz's heart is happy after dinner, and so he, he lies down at the end, the far end of a grain pile, and, and slowly drifts off to sleep. And, and Ruth has to be watching for clues that he really is asleep. It's like when our own kids were toddlers and I was reading them to sleep as I was sitting on their bed. And halfway through the book, I was sure they were asleep. So I let my voice just kind of slowly trail off into silence. And I'd start to get up from the bed and bam! They're wide awake again and now some of you are too. So Ruth can't move too quickly here. But when she's sure that Boaz is totally out, she makes her move. She comes softly. She uncovers his feet. And she lies down at his feet. Now this is where we're going to stop. <laughs> Don't be angry. We're going to pick it up here next week. But I will give you a little peek into what's coming if you'll promise to come back next week. So we good? Okay. Ruth is willing to risk everything because she realizes her only hope is in a redeemer, a permanent provider and protector. And so her question is, there to Boaz, when he awakens and sees her at his feet, she asked, Boaz, will you spread your wings over your servant? Will you be my redeemer? She's really asking two questions here. Number one, are you able to redeem me? And number two, are you willing to redeem me? 
And in verse 11, Boaz answers, Yes, Ruth, I am able and I am willing. I will redeem you. Now, the story isn't done yet because there's a problem that's going to pop up, but that's for next week. All we need to know right now is that Ruth is willing to risk all to make Boaz her redeemer, and Boaz is willing to give all to be her redeemer. And in doing so, Boaz is pointing us to the one who gives his all to redeem us. It's Jesus. You see, one of the most, not one of the most, it's, it's the most reckless risk we could ever take, which is also the greatest danger we could ever face. It's being like Ruth here and living and facing the potential of dying without a Redeemer, without Jesus. You see, there are two big questions that people have about Jesus that mirror the two questions that Ruth is asking Boaz here. Are you able to redeem me? And are you willing to redeem me? I've heard people ask, can Jesus really redeem me from my sins? Because, Pastor Ken, you don't know who I am or what I've done or where I've been. It isn't pretty. You're right. I don't know, but Jesus does because he's died not just for the worst of sins, but for the worst of sinners. And on top of that, Jesus doesn't just know in some insignificant way what that sin feels like. Jesus knows in a personal way because he absorbed the Father's wrath against that sin. He knows what it feels like to be a murderer and a thief and an adulterer. Not because he himself committed any of those sins, but because he paid the price in full for those sins. And for that to happen, he had to endure the Father's wrath against those sins. And so, yes, Jesus knows your sins. And yes, Jesus is able to forgive the greatest sins and the greatest sinners. And so you're able to know that he will redeem you. He is able to redeem you. That's why Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's paid the price for those sins. He's risen victorious over those sins. And even this morning, he is standing before the throne of God in heaven above, showing the marks that he was enough for those sins. He is able to save. So what about the second question? Is he willing? Is he willing? He himself answers that question in Matthew 11, verse 28, when with open arms he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus is able. He's willing to redeem you and save you. He's answered your two questions. The question is, will you answer his? Will you come? 
Will you be redeemed by Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone? Acts 16, verse 31 puts it this way, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10 says it this way, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you? Why won't you come to him? Repenting and turning from your sins and embracing him by faith alone. Because when you have believed on Jesus, then the big takeaway from this scene for you is this. When you are redeemed by God, you are forever refuged in God, which frees you then to risk much for the glory of God. Look at verse 9 of Ruth 3. The reason Ruth is able to risk it all is right here. It's when she says to Boaz, spread your wings over me. And that should jog our memories. Because back in chapter 2 and verse 12, we learned that Ruth had come to take refuge under the wings of her God. Boaz, I can trust under your wings. I can take that risk because I've come to trust and rest under the wings of my God. Because she took refuge in God, she could risk it all for the glory of God. And so can you. So what are you willing to risk for his sake? Or maybe the better question is, what aren't you willing to risk financially? Relationally, are you willing to give up the security of living near your children if God were to call one of them to serve as a missionary in Africa? Are you willing to risk losing your boyfriend or girlfriend because you tell them that you love and follow Jesus? Are you willing to embrace the risk of confessing to your spouse a sin that you've been hiding? What aren't you willing to risk for Jesus? The answers to those questions will, will reveal where your security is. Because living by faith in God will require you to risk much for the glory of God. And you can do that because you are forever secured by God. It's what Romans 8 says. Who shall ever separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Why would we risk any of those things as followers of Jesus? Here's why. Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Because I am sure, even in this risk, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing ever, forever. And so, you are free to risk much for his glory because you are forever safe in his grace. Amen. Father, may you...
May you, through your spirit, do what only you can do. May you do a work of grace on our hearts, conforming us to the image of Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, the one who refuges us in his grace forever. Show us this morning, I pray, anything in our life that we are unwilling to risk for your glory. Identify that as an idol in our life and give us the grace to be willing to do everything that you lead us to do. Help us to live by faith, even in the face of great danger. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.